Hello, this is Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Today's episode is in three parts. Coming up, we have Belinda Jari and Travis Alabanza. But before I introduce the first guest, I have a bit of news regarding the podcast. I've just been awarded a grant for the arts by Arts Council England with a view to providing transcripts of future episodes as well as the bulk of our archive. From February 2017 to September 2017, I'll be working toward producing transcripts of at least 80% of all of our episodes. Details of where these supporting documents can be found will be announced in the new year. To keep up to date with these new announcements and all new episodes and follow us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, Tumblr and Soundcloud and at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. You can also subscribe via iTunes and Stitcher. So tell your friends, yeah? First up is Savon Bartley. I was lucky enough to meet up with Savon while he was over in the UK from New York on a mini tour. I won't say too much about Savon as the chat begins with an introduction and, you know, there's not really any point of telling you what's going to be said in the recording. I think I might have to stop interviewing Americans as they make me sound very melancholic. Apparently the Victorians used the phrase the morbs to indicate melancholia. Americans make me sound like I've got a right case for the morbs. Here's Savon. The title of this poem is called One Blood. They tore down my grandmother's projects like a slab of dead blood and an avalanche of syringes chained its teeth around North Chicago. Days later, we found the radio kneeling in a bath with my cousin. Both were silent. Her body of crying photos we pulled from the flood. My family is now a shrill casing of before everything. The block is a quiet flame. No one eats together. Just dance under the spoons they feed us with. I drove past the church and the parking lot. The windows looked like the gloss on Big Mama's eyes when she went home. The whole hood was an avenue of skin. I found a glass box of jumping eyes spilling a knuckle of short breaths behind my aunt's house. So we stopped having Thanksgiving. I left home. The sky turned six. Then Jay got tried as an adult because he was the man in these streets. Thoughts carrying your own weight in a house that raised you better was three bricks. Family called, asked when I was coming home. All the words were a muffled footstep in my mouth, said anyway, said home hasn't come home since the blood left. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Good. Uh, It's nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just thinking, I do terrible introductions. You should just introduce yourself. Okay. This sounds like a plan. We can start that off. Um, My name is Savon Bartley. Um, I'm a North Chicago born poet. Currently, you can find me sleeping in New Jersey. (laughs) And you can find me doing poems, I mean, anywhere, but mostly uh, in New York City. Uh, I'm a writer, I'm a poet, I'm educated, uh, I'm a mentor in residence at a place called Urban Word NYC, which is a non-for-profit youth literary organization in New York City. We offer free workshops, free open mics, free poetry slams, free grant writing, free anything to, to the youth 13 to 19 in the state of New York. And uh, we just want them to you know, write poems about their feelings and stuff. We were just touching on the Arts Council before, before yeah. we started recording. How is your not-for-profit not for funded? 
how's that organization uh, through very generous donations yeah. <laughs> um well urban word has been around since uh 98 uh and they recently just went through a very different uh venue change but over the years they've built some really good relationships because i don't know urban word is one of those things that people know about it and they see that it's doing a good thing and you know they want to be a part of it somehow uh, it's just that we need those people to have money <laughs> so through the individuals who started the program to the people that are with it now um, these are all artists um, and facilitators and administrators in their own right who have accomplished many things you know in their own careers um, and they kind of like pull in and uh, we lean on the relationships and we have wonderful relationships with the Knicks basketball team you know grants across New York City and uh, universities and, and things like that. So we just do good work. And I think from my experience with the nonprofit, you do good things and good things come back to you. Yeah. And we promote a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, so um, that method or that framework of donations and people giving their time, is that a standard model in the States for arts organizations like that? Well, yeah, I would say it is a standard model. The difficulty ranges depending on what it is you're trying to do, definitely. As a, as a mentor in residence or as the artist, I don't really get to see all the background of you know, who CC'd and what email and things like that. So I don't know the inner workings you know, as much as I, I probably wouldn't want to know the inner workings as much, actually. Um, and, um, having, having completed two Arts Council applications, I can guarantee you don't want to know I don't how want any know. of this works. It's best to just... Yeah, if you could just, you could just turn up and do it, it's much better. Beautiful. I love my I love my position. The kids come up to me and they're like, hey, can you read this poem? Yes, I can do this. This is my job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering that I sort of imagine that although there's a lot of difficulty raising money in yeah, yeah. donations, it strikes me as though there might be a bit more freedom in what you can do oh. because you're just sort of given, you don't have to justify it in advance. Do you know, in the, yeah. with, with the funding system over in this country, especially if you go down the typical route of the Arts Council, or, yeah, or yeah. You, you have to have a very clear idea of what you want to achieve before you do and what your audience are. Mm. There's, uh, there are a few, very few ways in this country of just getting money yeah. from people, you know? Oh yes, most definitely. I think before we were talking about it, um, you were saying that, you know, here unfortunately we're kind of cutting the arts, um, which happened already in the States, you yeah. know, so it's even more difficult. But you were saying that it's easier for like individuals to get so. uh, yeah. the grants as to where, from my perspective and my pers experience, it's difficult both ways. But for individuals to get grants over in the States, way more difficult. Okay. Um, just because you're not established in anything, you know, who's to say you're actually going to do what it is you want to do with the money. Oftentimes, you get denied the first time, no matter what. You can, you know, be having the, the cure for cancer. Um, and they're still going to be like, nah, next time, you know, try again in two years. Um, as to where if you have, you know, organizations uh, like Urban Word who have built the relationship, it was difficult for them as well. But, you know, thank goodness they kind of kept going. Well, they did keep going and now they have what they have now. Um, it's always a difficult thing asking for money and to rely on the kindness of people. There's a lot of things I want to do as an artist, right? I want to create things. I want to create you know, videos and, and poetry and shows or whatever the case may be, uh, galleries, showcases, anything that I could possibly think of. And these things require money that I do not have <laughs> and may not have for a very long time. So I think to myself when I say, well, maybe I can get a grant or a scholarship, yeah, yeah. you know, even if that. And with that comes the time to write this grant scholarship, 
the, the revisions of this grant scholarship to see, you know, who's going to be looking at it, doing research on that person, time of, you know, if I submit it to you in February of this year, I probably won't get my answer until later in the year, um, which puts my project on hold and things like that. It's, it's we just want to create things. <laughs> we just want to be artists. But yeah, it's, it's difficult because I mean, even when I was in, when I was in school, they cut the arts programs in the institutions, you know, high school, middle school, mm -hmm. things like that. You had band, you know, uh, art, drawing, theater, whatever yeah. the case may be. They didn't see fit, the states didn't see fit, or some areas of the states didn't see fit that, you know, it was really necessary. They didn't think it was doing anything. But they cut the funding so they can, you know, have the people that are getting paid, pay more. Yeah. You know, the kids are left, you know, doing math, which is nothing that's important for math, but expression is important as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? There has to be some, some kind of tool or outlet yeah. that should be used. Just one more question about funding, because yeah. I, I, my general preparation for all uh, interviews with people is I generally, genuinely, or generally, sorry, write the person's name on a piece of paper. Yeah. Hope, hope that I got that right. And then, that, and then I don't really do much else. So <laughs> you mentioned the Knicks supporting the organization. Yeah. And uh, I saw a family of Knicks fans walk past on the river earlier. So I'm going to just, just piqued my interest a little bit. Is it common for uh, sports? I suppose yeah. franchises is common over in the States, but is it common for that kind of support in the arts? Because over here, with football teams over here, yeah, yeah, um, most of them are obliged to do some sort of community work. Most, a lot of them traditionally did it anyway, mm -hmm. but it's very rare that that involves the arts in any way. I don't know of many. I might be wrong, but at least I don't know of many that support the arts. No, definitely. So is it, but is it more common in the states for that? Oh, most definitely. When you have, um, when you have particular franchises or you have big organizations that get all this money. There's, our taxes are ridiculous, right? Yeah. Um, so you have all this money, but you are forced to invest a portion of that, however much depends on you know how much you get or what the clarifications are. Um, you have to invest that in charity work, right? Um, so I'm not gonna speak directly on Nick's because I don't know the relationship yeah. between you know the behind the scenes yeah, CC's yeah. emails thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but in in uh, projects that I have been involved in, you know, over some years and they did have the larger budgets, it's this basketball team or sports team or you know big name company gets a million dollars, right? They have to use 10, 20% of that to invest it back into their community somehow. Um, and the best way to do that is the people that need it the most, which are the arts, which is the arts community, you know what I mean? So um, as long as it's positive, as long as you know it's flourishing and uh, being effective in what it does then yeah they'll usually have like they have like a google doc of just list of charities to donate to it's yeah. like oh we have ten thousand dollars all right you know go through the alphabet on the sheet pick one and you know we'll, we'll sign a check um, so the struggle as an american artist is get getting on that document yeah we got to get on the google sheet <laughs> like, what do i have to do to get on the google doc <laughs> i tell you what i don't want to talk about money anymore but we'll break the uh, cycle by second reading and okay. then I'll try and think of something else Sounds to talk good. about. <laughs> so this piece is a version, I'm not going to call it a full one, this piece is a version of a cento. Um, and a cento is a form of poetry to where you take multiple lines from different texts and you put it on one sheet of paper to create a brand new text. Right? So say I take the last four you know, inaugural speeches um, of like the president right? and I just pick out one line here, one line there, one line there put it on the same page, you have a poem. 
Um, I didn't want to do the president, so I did Kanye West. <laughs> so this is because uh, <laughs> he's important. He's very important to the culture. Um, so yeah, to to this is a uh, a center or excerpts from the uh, Kanye West discography about the city uh, of Chicago, which I'm part of. North, I'm from North Chicago, so it's like it means a lot to me. So the name of this poem is Jesus Part Five. Historically. The Midwest is the murder capital. We're young, I could die today type attitude. Black kids are murdered for capital and a white man get paid off of all of that. So who the kids gonna listen to? The schools is closed, the prison's open, the system's broken, so I guess me if it isn't you. I had a dream, I walked through the valley of the shy where death is just like moments passing in front of me, colder than the souls of men. I heard at least three murders this afternoon. The government want to put us all in a box like styrofoam. Last year, Chicago had over 600 caskets. If you know what it means to find your dreams come true, this is something like the Holocaust, like a plane crash, like Katrina with no FEMA. I romanced about leaving it all behind. Buy me a spaceship. Spend my whole life goodwill hunting 30,000 feet up past the sky and I don't know if I'll be back again. I did it for the glory, the fame, and the stardom and intern. It's like the streets got Merrill Lynch and we've been hanging from the same tree ever since. I wish I could stop time like a photograph and re-spark the soul like spoken word straight from the page of your favorite author. What you think I rap for? I want you to be proud of me, but I know that if I stay stunting, there will be no return. I can't keep myself and keep you too. I know I got a bad reputation, but that's the old me. I don't think there's nothing I can do now to right my wrongs, y'all. See my story, my glory. I'm just trying to change the color on your mood ring. I'm on CNN talking like this is my dissertation. I tell them this is family business, so I'm coming home again. Every problem you had before this day is done. This is the day we become legendary. It's gonna take a whole lot more than coupons to get us saved, but baby, I got a plan. On the count of three, this little light of mine finna take y'all back to the better times. I ain't even gotta act holier than thou. I know I can make it by. Cause right now, thou has forsaken us. I know that Jesus died for us, but I just talked to Jesus and I heard him say nothing's ever promised tomorrow today. I got a call like, where are you, Yeezy? I need you right now. You are a champion in their eyes. You can still be who you wish you is. He said, wake up, Mr. West. Mr. West, Mr. I said, sorry, Mr. West is gone. It's a new crack on a new stove. Everybody knows I'm a monster. Sold soul for you. And y'all still don't understand. I am a God. Bow in the presence of greatness. Jesus just rose again. Thank you, thank you. You made him sound like a bloody genius. <laughs> he is. I interviewed someone yesterday that's taken excerpts from Fifty Shades of Grey, and it made me want to read the book. Hey. I think um, ripping excerpts out, like, this is good. Hey, yeah, I like that. There we go, there we go. Tell um, me, first so, three albums, there you yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> so you're living in New York now, but originally from Chicago. Yeah, I'm originally from North Chicago. Um, Whereabouts? Uh, North Chicago, which is a wonderful story. So I say North Chicago and people automatically assume that it's the city of Chicago, yeah, yeah. right? Um, North Chicago is actually 
30 minutes outside yeah. of the city. People would never really ask me that. So they're just like, oh, from Chicago. I love Chicago. So oh, I'm really interested in Beautiful. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so basically, I'm from like the Burbs. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've been in and out of the city, you know, most of my young life. Yeah. Um, my whole family's been in the Lake County area for like the last, oh goodness, like 60 years. My, my aunt uh, has lived in the same house for the last. I don't know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. We're the only twins in Lake County. I have, we, our family has the only twins in Lake County. Um, uh, we have a church that people... It's a smaller area, but I don't know. It's one of those small town things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I moved out of Chicago. Oh, man, when I was a kid. When I was a kid, yeah. Chicago sort of... When I, at least when I wasn't there for that long, but it feels like a, a collection of small towns. Anyway, it's quite similar to London, I think. You've got like yeah. little... Yeah, you have uh, you have you know the West Side. You have uh, Jewtown. You have Southside Chicago. You have that's all the Wild Hundreds and yeah, things yeah. like that. You have uh, Chinatown. Um, it's I think it's I think it's some, similar to you know a lot of cities anywhere I go. You know, even yeah, being yeah. in London, I, I realize that each place has its own. Like Peckham has its own vibe. Brixton has its own vibe. You know, uh, um, Finchley has its own. Vibe. Peckham's got its own vibe. If they don't stop. The infiltration that's <laughs> happening at the moment because it's a bit we were. Oh, don't get me started thing. on Peckham. Oh, I hear that it's, it's getting like gentrified now. Or uh, like it's just the, getting beanie hatted. That's what's happening. <laughs> beanie beanie hatted and <laughs> that's a new one. I got it right there. I really <laughs> for a long time. Bro, right. Oh, this is going to be a big tangent. It's okay. It was happening in East London. Okay. And I don't go to East London, so I don't care. And they can do what they want over there. <laughs> But they're on the, our side of the river now. <laughs> it's not right. They built an overground train from East London to South East London, oh, and it's all gone wrong. It's, it's all gone. Wrong. <laughs> like you had one job. Yeah. You had yeah, one yeah. job. As long as they stay stay off the wall, you won't you won't understand this reference. It doesn't matter. As long as they stay off Woolworth Road, I don't care. It's so okay. that's the main thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm probably projecting a little bit, but you can clarify it if. Uh, yeah, you should anyway. But um, just wondering. As a poet in Chicago or on the eastern, over to the eastern side of the states, is it just a matter of course that you end up in the spoken word scene? Or well, before before I was doing poetry, uh, I was I was uh, into theater a lot. Yeah. So I did I did a lot of acting. I was, did a lot of acting. <laughs> so the reason I moved to the East Coast was to pursue an acting career. Yeah. Honestly, I got a job offer at the Viacom Center, which is like, you know, like Nickelodeon, MTV, all those people. Um, my agency was in New York. Um, I, Viacom's my favorite ident at the end. Yeah. yeah we, Viacom. I was, Viacom. <laughs> <laughs> I was just at the, the one in UK. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah. I went to the Viacom UK. We did a poetry reading for anti-bullying week. Yeah. Um, and it, that's awesome. I was like, oh, this is the, the English version. All right, this is cool. Um, so yeah, I moved to New York to pursue a dream uh, of being an actor because it's, make it there you can make it anywhere you know but I believe the hype yeah um, there was a writer strike that happened the year that I came over um, my agency flipped over it was a lot of mess so you know push came to shove uh, more of the story is I stopped acting um, but like many people uh, who I've come across you know found poetry I found poetry in high school um, this girl that I liked liked poems so that meant I like poems now <laughs> um, that's how that goes you know? that's how I started cooking <laughs> exactly oh you like food well <laughs> I guess this is going to be a lifestyle choice yeah. uh, 
But yeah, I didn't get the girl, but I realized that I, I liked writing, which was something that never happened before. I hated writing before. And then, you know, YouTube was a and thing. And isn't that the true love? Yes, that's, <laughs> the true love. <laughs> that's the goal. That is, that's the end of all of all. Oh my gosh. But YouTube was a thing. Um, and then you had things like Def Jam, yeah. you know, and that's pretty much everyone's gateway drug to, to the, the poetry lifestyle. Um, so I did that, you know, um, I, I wrote in my room. I did like small events in the high school. Um, I'm not sure what you guys call it here. Uh, what age is that? That's, that would be your 10th year. You go one, five, four, 15? 14, 15. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so secondary school. Okay, yeah, yeah, secondary yeah, yeah. school, right, right, right. So um, uh, I wrote, did things in high school. I graduated high school um, and then I started going to New York, right? So I'm writing like in my room. Two, two years, started going to New York, um, doing open mics. I wanted to, you know, just see, see what it was. Did that. Um, fast forward some more. Uh, I just kept kept at it. Then I found out what like, competitions were, like poetry slams, right? Um, so I started going to poetry slams in the city. You know, me and my friends would go the weekend on Friday or Wednesday. Um, and then I got to college and then met other people that also did poems. It kind of it kind of like feeds itself, you know, when you keep up with it. The 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 point of when I guess I took poetry seriously was it's my whole freshman sophomore year of university, which you start freshman sophomore year of college. Um, this is historic venue in New York called the New Eureka Poets Cafe. It's like one of the most recognizable poetry cafes in the states, um, or actually around the world at this point. And they have a poetry slam on Wednesday nights, right? Um, so me and my friends from college were like, "Yo, we're gonna go." to New York, we're gonna slam and you we're gonna we're gonna kill the game, you know what I mean? We're gonna be best. No one's no one's gonna be nice as us, you know, it's talking crap, right? Um, so we go, I can't imagine anyone doing yeah. that in this country. <laughs> no, it does not happen. They're so reserved. I'm here. gonna be so polite. <laughs> nah. I'm gonna love everything. <laughs> Girl, we were like, nah, we're gonna, we're gonna change the game. We're just gonna be like the next. We were saying all kinds of crazy things. But we go. It was a wonderful night. I ended up meeting a really good friend uh, that I'm still friends with to this day in the line. Um, we go and we did well. I actually, I for that night, I won the slam. Uh, we, in whatever, however many posts it was, first like really big slam that I did. Um, and if you win the Wednesday, you go back Friday. Friday is like the big, the big night. You know what I mean? Um, and the host for Wednesday, his name's Jive Poetic. Um, Jive came up to me and he was like, oh, you're a good kid, you know, you like your poem, you can't come here by Friday. And I was like, I got class. <laughs> I come back next Friday. And he told me, he just happened to ask how old I was. I was 17 at the time. Um, he was like, you can't come Friday. I said, why not? He says, you have to be 21 um, <laughs> in order to, you know, slam for the team. Because if you win the Friday, you have a chance to be on the team representing New York City at the bigger slam in the States. Um, and I was like, that sucks. Like, I won them. But what he did say was, you should go to Urban Word NYC. And I said, what's Urban Word NYC? Um, and that's kind of the story of uh, how I started doing poems. I went to Urban Word. They had their own poetry slam, a youth one that I was qualified for. Um, and uh, I ended up making that team for their, to represent New York at this big uh, national competition. Um, and ever since like that particular Wednesday night, it was just, I think I might be doing this for a long time. So yeah. And fast forward, you know, three, four years now, I'm working at the nonprofit <laughs> that I came out of. Um, and and that's, that's a beautiful thing. I, I owe them a lot more than they really know. 
um, more than they'll probably ever know, but I appreciate them. Is the, the mentoring that you do, what's the motivation there? Do you feel, a, is it a sense of obligation? Is that too strong a word? I'm tr- I think the reason I'm asking this question to people is because I can't quite get the wording right in my head and I'm right. not sh- quite sure what it, uh, I, basically coming from this, I served a carpentry apprenticeship okay. and I wouldn't have my job skills if somebody hadn't, if the system wasn't in place that you train uh, up the next generation. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I, uh, I'd like to see more of it in the arts. It's surprising to me that not more people are willing to think. Well, it's not even that they're not willing. It's just they don't see the, that. Yeah. It's not really the question. This is no, not no. A question. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> um, no, I. For me personally, I had never ever planned on being a mentor, being a teacher. I, I hated school. I couldn't stand it. I graduated and I said, "That's it. I'm not going back." You got my four years. I got the piece of paper. It's done. But for me, it was by accident. And also it was, I was already doing it and not knowing that I was doing it. When you get to a particular level or when you do certain things, there's always somebody watching you, you know, even if you don't know it, right? Especially re- coming back to places like Urban Word or coming back to places that you know, I went to earlier in my college years after graduating, people would say, oh, you're, you're the guy that did the thing or, you know, oh, I recognize you back when or da 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 And they be like, hey, can I send you a poem? You look at something really quick, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I like poems. You know, I'll look at it. But how I particularly got into teaching was there was a year for this competition that the usual coaches for the slam team um, weren't going to be around, and I kind of asked and not asked at the same time. Anyway, long story short, I ended up coaching a slam team, first time ever coaching, and you know, we did that, and that was a cool experience. And it was like, crap, I don't know how to tell you how to do these things and what ended up happening was I am a product of the people that have mentored me right so it's like passing down the knowledge is I know what they taught me so I'm going to teach you what they taught me then you're going to teach the whoever you know it's like a domino effect so after the first time coaching uh, a member of that same team was also in in a university team he gave me a call and said hey kind of the only person that I trust with this team would you my coaching and I was just like no that's <laughs> I don't coach I, I, I don't do that that's not a thing I, I perform I do other things but I love them to death and I said all right well I'll give it a shot you know and they did well and they did well and in that process I said I think I do okay at this and there was something beautiful that I found in being the one pushing the art mm. in a particular direction, not carrying it, right? As where I do whatever it is that I do, I'm always feeling as though, like, all right, this is my art, I'm gonna carry this to wherever it is I'm going. As to where they are, and they have their own experiences, their own poems to write, their own things, and we work on it. We're up two o'clock in the morning, going through drafts, going through Google Docs, crossing things out, using different, you know, tools. It's freeing, isn't it? It's Helping people with their, with their work, yeah. And when you see, there's a moment when you see the light bulb above their head go off. When that happened for me, when I really paid attention to it, like when I saw one of my students have that breakthrough, that brought me probably more happiness than anything that I did on my own, mm-hmm. right? Just to see like, yes, that's it. You got it. And then to see that flourish and become something on a stage or in a book or 
you know, in a classroom or something like, yo, we worked on that for three weeks. <laughs> and even though I personally didn't write it, I feel as though I was part of that experience, you know? Um, and then fast forward, going back to places like Urban Word, who just say, oh, you should come back and teach a workshop, you know? What do you mean, teach a workshop? We don't teach workshops, you know? So I teach one, then they say you should teach another one. There are people that know they want to teach. There are people that know they want to, you know, push whatever craft there is at work or not, whether it be carpentry, dance, poetry, all of that. But I think it's a growing thing, right? I think you have to grow into that place to no longer only think of what am I doing? You know, how am I gonna change the game? How am I gonna, you know, produce quality work? And then when you get to that place and you're content in your creation process, you're content in what you do, whatever it is, you also understand that you're not going to do it for forever. And you're gonna have to give it up or give it away to someone else, right? And I think that I have zero problems giving that to the students that I have and, and trusting them and saying, you know, when I'm done, whenever that is, you know, it's gonna be okay. Like the art is gonna is gonna live through you. And also in that I also teach now knowing there have been individuals in my life who I've looked up to, right? There are people that everyone has their heroes, right? Um, and there have been moments, very few moments, but moments that I will always remember to where I reached out to these heroes uh, as close as you're sitting next to me and did not receive the knowledge that I you know, was, would, would have hoped to get. And I know that if I was in that position, would never want someone else who looked at me to feel that way. Never meet your heroes, man. <laughs> never meet your heroes. They will only let you down. They'll only burn you. <laughs> Just looking at the, we're, gonna, we're sort of running on for time, so we're gonna, I think we should finish with a reading. Finish with yeah, a reading. Please. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. In the art of things I don't get to read too often, I'll read a short one. Um, I never get to read my short poems. <laughs> so, since we did Kanye West last time, we'll do Eminem this time. It's an erasure poem. And for anyone wondering what an erasure is, an erasure is when you take a piece of existing text and you just cross out the lines you don't want and whatever is left is your poem. Um, so this is an erasure of Eminem's hit song, My Name Is, <laughs> off of his first album. Um, and I appreciate Little Poetry for having me. Who is my excuse? For one second, violence is hung with her clothes on. My name is what's wanted to strip my life. Found out hands like screaming. Don't just leave, be the cemetery, buried, clothes on, by this dream I had. Thank you very much. Thank you for having Thanks me. Thanks for joining us. Yes, um, yes. I may have already said this in the intro, which I have not yet pre-recorded, but all of the links to your blogs and online presence will be in the description of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That was Savon Bartley. Take a look at the episode description to find links to his work and online presence, as you can for our next guest, Belinda. Belinda recently began in a new role as Associate Poet at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London and is also a member of the fantastic Octavia Poetry Collective based at the South Bank Centre, also in London. We talk about those things and other things, you know how the format works. 
I probably talk too much in this interview and my apologies about that but I really enjoy talking to Belinda. It's hard to shut up sometimes. Here's Belinda. Uh, this poem is called Mother, a response to some sections in A Handmaid's Tale. I was born a mistake of humiliating sweaty tangles, heavy, formless, dark, a collusion of sorts. Nightly, I pray to bloom into an exotic monster, like the beautiful sunset greetings cards they used to make. But I am wool, I am grey, and smell faintly of damp sheep, a woman reported without evidence, against the law. Find yourself a match, you can ask for one. Only the one, though, one of my mother's old phrases. She also said, being a woman is to be a frozen halo, a hole in space, zero. It's to be crashed over, spine constricting to question mark. If woman speaks freely, they throw buns at her. I know what she's talking about in these whisperings, these revelations. For those moments, we are our kitchen table, eggs, flowers, wilting, fragile things, easily bruised by pressure. Between us, there is not much common ground, except this one mysterious and chancy thing, like mother and daughter. I should scratch marks on the wall, run a line through when I have seven, but I tell time by the moon, lunar, not solar. Some days I do appreciate more. I script whole fights in my head, the reconciliations afterwards, geometrical, closed and defective, like throwing peanuts at elephants. Instead, I wait for the earth to turn me, all things white and circular, like a girl's club, like secrets at school, in shape more or less like a church, a cathedral. Every night is too damn hot. I cannot say this. I cannot lose sight. I cannot speak a small hope. Thank you very much, Belinda. Nice. Thanks for joining me. Um, just a quick note, because I'm so much of a professional, I've chosen to record next to a children's play area yeah. in, the Royal, in the Royal Festival <laughs> in the South Bank, outside the Poetry Library, so there may be some background noise, but it's joyful children's noises, yeah, so um, only the worst person would ever complain. <laughs> <laughs> would you mind just introducing yourself quickly yeah, and we can get sure. on with the chat? Hello, my name is Belinda Jawi. I am a writer, I'm a poet, and a budding bookseller. <laughs> We could start by talking about your first piece there. Sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was that written for Octavia? Yes. So, so we, yeah. let's talk Sorry. about that first piece. Um, um, yeah, so uh, Octavia approached by the Southbank Centre to respond to A Handmaid's Tale by Margaret um, Atwood. There was a whole festival around that time anyway, where different people doing different forms of art like responded to, the, to, to that work. Yeah, uh, the way it was set up was that it was sectioned off into the book in itself is, is in sections anyway. So uh, different people allocated different sections to respond to. So I responded to that um, by just sort of going through some of the text and editing it into a different narrative. 
And could you briefly explain what Octavia is? So Octavia is a workshop, yeah, workshop space for women of colour led by poet Rachel Long. And it's been going on for close to a year now, I think. And it's doing really well, I think. And we're housed at the South Bank and we meet up monthly to do workshops, drawing influence from different forms of art and expression. So it's not just always poetry, you know, sometimes life drawing, sometimes uh, novels as, as, as the example before. And how um, did you get involved with Octavia? Um, so I guess Rachel had some people in mind uh, that she approached yeah. to, to be part of Octavia and if they were interested then they joined. But there is, I guess, that desire to want to write in that sort of space where you're surrounded by people who are sort of receptive about your story and your perspective. So, Have you been part of a collective before? Uh, yeah, yeah years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I used to do, so the, the poetry course at the Roundhouse that they do for young people is called Roundhouse Poetry Collective. Uh, so in that capacity, that was my first experience of being in a collective. Yeah. Um, and then we were sort of signing on again every year as a poet. So basically we weren't giving other people a chance to do the course. So they're the way of like <laughs> keeping along. us around, yeah, exactly. And like, but moving us along was to give us our own like collective, which was called Rubix. And um, Rubix was a lot, a lot of fun. Rest in peace, Rubix. <laughs> uh, well, I think I shouldn't say that because we haven't officially like disbanded. As some people might get sore about that. <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. I mean, we're funded by the Roundhouse, supported by them, put in a, a show at, um, in their studio space, and. Went to Edinburgh, uh, I think in like 2012, 2011 or something. That was really fun. So, yeah. I was also part of another poetry collective called Pip, which, is, uh, which was Joshua Dems' uh, poetry collective alongside Musa Konga and Inua Ellens. Um, but there was a time when they kind of brought on a few of us guys on board. And that was an interesting time as well. Mm. It's obviously quite a big part of your practice now, this collective sharing of ideas. Um, or... Actually, I never really enjoyed uh, the, the, <laughs> the collective exper experience. I actually, after Rubix sort of stopped meeting up regularly, like I was not really interested in being in a collective. It, it's something I think still kind of really not interested. I'm interested in communities for sure um, that support you know the work I do or and then allow me to be there for other people as well and it just doesn't have to be in that collective sense you know because um yeah it's just about I'm more interested in spaces where we can exchange ideas without having to feel bound to one another or yeah do you, you find know. the, the experience we, restrictive if you've all got a jet like a agreed I, outcome or um I, I think it works for some people but yeah. for me personally I just find that I'm not very good at committing myself <laughs> in the way that sometimes being in a collective requires, you know, because you have to be giving equally. And it gets to a point sometimes where some people are giving more than the others. Yeah. And what I like about Xavier is that even though it's a collective, it's become a collective. It really actually just started out as this space for workshopping each other's work. And, you know, but then even now as a collective, it's about putting in as much as you can. And, um, and getting the same out of that as well. So, like, yeah, another community I was a part of was Burn After Reading, by, which was founded by Jake, Jacob Samuel Rose. And that was really interesting in the sense of it almost being a collective, but not, but just sort of being a space where you could come be supported and support and contribute 
Um, but what, however much you put in is however much you get out, kind of thing. It's similar to how these podcasts started. So the reason they're called Lunar Poetry Podcasts is yeah. because it started alongside Lunar Poetry Magazine. Right, yeah, And there were a couple of other people involved. It sort of faded away a little bit, like the first collective you were yeah. saying, although it hasn't officially disbanded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it's but it was more about having a, an agreed set of principles rather sure. than trying to produce work together. We, yeah, yeah. we just agreed pretty much or pretty loosely on what we think what we thought wasn't there yeah. and we were all trying to make these things happen yeah. you know, whatever we thought was lacking we were mm. trying to produce that before we move on to a few other things i just wanted to touch on the performance that happened at the south bank center right, right. but it, so it's basically a performance of the, from the whole collective wasn't yes. it that night and you for most of the collective mo you, yeah that's it, pretty much went, everyone yeah. but not everyone yeah uh, actually how did how did the show come about first? And we can um, probably explain it as we go along. So yeah, as, as I mentioned before, it was an, a, a commission from the South Bank Centre for their, as part of their London Literature Festival. But if you want to know more about the process, it was just about meeting up quite a lot more regularly than we would normally. So we all got our sections, obviously, through email and whatnot. And then obviously everyone's working on it. And meeting up together, workshopping that and rehearsing and sort of choreographing it in a way that kind of made it interesting as opposed to just having one person read after the other, you know, that could have been a bit much. So it was about mixing up things, speaking of each other, kind of making the performance as dynamic as you can, really. And I really enjoy it. It's one of the best spoken word shows I've seen oh, in a long time you. because yeah. because of the physical aspects of yeah. it, because there were, was dance, there was also uh, video involved, yes, yeah. um, BSL interpreter. Yeah which is a really interesting aspect in itself because it seemed to be interpretive in itself yes the, the, the yeah. signing um no definitely and also the way you all read it you're absolutely right it wasn't that probably gives the best idea of what it was to people listening is, is that you weren't all just getting up and reading in turn it was yeah. a, very much a dynamic and fluid performance yeah, wasn't sure. it? Where you were getting up and reading alongside or over each other or, yes you know yeah, yeah sort of layering things you know yeah i think we just wanted to make it as, as engaging as possible because too many times, you know, after you've had about five women just talking about really <laughs> intense, dark stuff. <laughs> well, I think that's the problem with going to uh, any collective reading, isn't mm. it? It's because you're all there because I suppose you should share, and this goes for any collective, mm. you all share an identity or a way of thinking. So to go to a series of readings fr right, from a collective... Right, which is like is, everyone telling you the same. Yeah. I mean, different, like different voices, yeah, yeah, of yeah. course, different textures and all, all these things, but definitely a similar influences in a lot of ways and that's very easy to notice. Yeah. This is all Rachel Long's vision anyway, like, you know, she knows, you know, she's just got, I mean, everyone contributes what we can, but like, she's also, she's also got a really strong vision that she's she's putting out there and then we all believe in it. And How collaborative was the physical aspect of the show? I guess it, it's more of Rachel kind of coming up with a framework and then us negotiating with that when we meet up. So. That's pretty much how it was. Uh, but we were all very much in agreement that we didn't want it to be like a straightforward sit down, um, sorry, stand up, read one after the other type of uh, reading. Yeah. We wanted to sort of uh, expand it a bit um, and give it a bit more life. So we'll move on in topic now to the fact that you've recently started as the poet in residence at the ICA, which sure, is, for yeah. those who don't know, is the Institute of Contemporary Art um, in central London. 
Yeah, like I'm nodding at you, like people can, uh, can see. Yeah, yeah, I, I always forget like you, people don't necessarily know or care. Yeah. <laughs> what that could yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, I got approached by uh, someone from the ICA late summer, asking me if I wanted to take on the role of associate poet. I, I kind of didn't read the whole email. I got really excited, like very immediately. Then I read it again and it was like, oh yeah, we'll be talking to, other, to a few other poets as well. And I was like, damn, <laughs> <laughs> but that's cool. Yeah. Um, and I'd seen the work Kaya Chungonyi had done the season before and I, I, was, I just thought it was such a fascinating role. I just, it was, came as a really pleasant surprise when I got, they got in touch because I just didn't, I really admire Kaya and he's like sort of somebody over the years whose work I've looked up to and been aware of. So yeah, that was, that was, that was really interesting to be offered, to be feeling, on, feeling in them shoes. We met up uh, a few times and they, they, were, they liked me, I guess. And they were like, yeah, so you got the job. Um, but I, I kind of just didn't say it to anyone for a few months because I wasn't sure, yeah. like, you know, I wanted it to be official on the website, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I turned around and telling nothing everyone, worse like, than yeah, having to explain so what, I got this job. <laughs> what went wrong. <laughs> like, but, but um, <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, that, 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 that for me was a good thing like in, in every sense like you know so I'm really I've started now uh, and I, it's stressful at the same time but I'm I'm really enjoying it you know just uh, a quick note for those listening you um, I interviewed Kaio when sure, he yeah. was in the role of a, it's associate poet isn't yeah, it rather yeah, than yeah, poet yeah. in residence although they're, I mean, it's they're the, same, the same thing, same but, thing yeah. yeah if people wanted to go back in the archive they can listen to that so what's involved in the role uh, in the role because I know Kaio organized some events there yeah and, it's more of a curatorial role, really. It's not really writing-centred. It would have been nice, I guess, to, you know, like, I mean, there are residences that do that, that give you that space and the, and the time to write, you know. This is more about engaging with people on behalf of the ICA to bring more people into their space, to open up people to different forms of contemporary art, poetry being, and spoken word being one of those. So. It's going to be a series of events so it involves, involves me putting on a talk uh, a discussion a couple workshops and anything else that I'm, i want to do really uh, it's just about running it by my the contact person and then uh, are there any events lined up yeah so we've got the first that. sort of uh the, so the first two events that are happening are happening next week um it's uh, going to be a uh, private sort of workshop uh, and and then the main of the first event of the role that I'm mm. actually putting on uh, which is going to be a discussion it's called language and memory uh, poetics of the personal just in discussion with four other black women poets working and living in the UK at the moment talking about their practice talking about their process talking about how much their personal life influences their work and also any sort of intersections between or their personal space and, and, their, and their political sort of um, ideas. Yeah, so it's just going to be very relaxed, informal discussion uh, where we just be discussing things and reading in between and just flowing and talking to the audience and stuff. So yeah, hopefully. so if people go over to the ICA website, I'll post a link to that. Yeah. Also, I'll retweet Yes. The, uh, we'll retweet and put on so, Facebook when the events are happening. Sure, so let me, so I guess let me follow. plug it properly. Uh, oh. It's on the 8th of December. Uh, oh, this goes out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, I thought so. But, yeah. um, but there'll be more. <laughs> there'll be more events yeah, yeah. throughout till spring. So yeah. it's like a roll till spring. 
and there'll be there'll be lots of stuff happening till then. So we've got some ideas brewing. How free are you in in this role? Is there any obligation or are you is it an extension of anything that Kayo did originally in the role? Or is there any, is that, I think no, that's my question. Is there any yeah, flow from there, one? No, there's no overlap no. really, unless if I chose that, that I wanted it to be that way. Uh, but I think that yeah, by getting different artists, you know, they're trying to get as in, as many individual perspectives as possible. So it's not really like there's not pressure to like sort of live up to that legacy in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think it's quite a free role actually, like in terms of um, judging alongside other commissions I've got in the past. Like there's room to um, maneuver in a way I see fit. You know, uh, the only restrictions out there are just quite logistical, as opposed to creative. So yeah. yeah. And did you have to make any suggestions of what you'd want to do in the role before yeah. you? Uh, well, I, I, not really. There was no pressure of yeah, that. Yeah. It's just more when the role was given, was uh, passed, was offered, and I accept, accepted. Then it became more of like, so what are our plans, loosely, and just sort of sketching out. Because I guess museums and galleries have got a plan way in advance yeah. for for each season. So it's about just like fitting it, yeah, within that. Yeah, I think that the reason that these questions are on my mind at the moment is because, and it wasn't deliberately planned in this mm. way, but the, as part of this episode, I'll be yeah, talking sure. to Travis Alabanza, who is currently artist in residence at the Tate, mm. and we were talking about the differences between what Travis considers to be qu queer and political in their work okay. practice yeah. and what a big institution you like might, that yeah, accepts course, yeah. as uh, queer and political, and the, and the compromise you have to make within your own work and yeah. what, can, what um, can be thrown out. I'm trying to find a way to see how far I can go now. <laughs> yes, I've definitely been having uh, thoughts around this. <laughs> um, yeah, because obviously, let's say with this event, which originally for me, I planned it to be a sort of a woman, women of color panel. But after approaching people, you know, um, people are busy. So it just ends up, end up just being like five black women in conversation with each other, which is also fine because you know, it's it's just similar, similar, really. It's kind of like the same thing. But I think it's about sort of the phrasing. So there's no problem with that because obviously people want to hear those conversations. People want to engage with that, those narratives. But I guess what I might see is quite, I don't really see that as like um, super radical or whatever. Like, you know, I see it as like an ex something that, I think what I see as radical is that I've taken, taken these conversations that I have on a regular basis with other women into those spaces which are quite white, mm. quite uh, patriarchal. And for them, or for other people who are not really part of, who are not really in that world, they might be like, you know, this is a bit much. But yeah, it's actually is it, like- is it, is it suddenly like your work suddenly becomes radical because it's just Yeah, because space. it's, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not much, <laughs> it's, it's quite basic really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, there's just so many connotations around that. But then also, I think the point I'm trying to get to, uh, whilst I'm trying to find my way in there, <laughs> uh, is that, you know, sometimes it's the phrasing of the marketing material, you know, like, you know, you might say exactly what it is in a, an explicit manner, you know, like four black women sitting down to have a conversation about their practice and their work. And that is a bit much, so it has to be toned down. So there's just... I think that what I'm finding is just uh, what I would see as quite straightforward and pretty much to the point and not really that out there uh, is in those spaces got to be hushed down a little bit more, you know, to to reach out to everyone. 
and you know uh, bring them through the doors and buy tickets and you know watch the show because you've got to sell tickets <laughs> but you know yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas in my own space where let's say when I'm doing Born Free that language is not a problem it's mm. permissible but yeah it's it's a really interesting um, conversation to have I think and I think I'm not being as straightforward as I would like to be but I'm just being wary no but it's early in the role isn't yeah, yeah, it yeah exactly and it, I just think it's um, it's interesting for to ask any I'm very interested in how these um, residency or associate roles work because um, as artists if you're going to try and make a living out mm. of your any practice these these gonna are what you're going to have to do these things and no matter what your practice is yeah there will be compromises in any exactly. space because sure. like you're saying this but especially somewhere like the ICA if we go back to Travis's experience yeah. the Tate the Tate is obviously a massive yeah. institution and the ICA is nowhere near the size yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're a bit freer within that role yeah, yeah. but the ICA is far more commercial I would yeah, say because yeah. they have to sell tickets yeah. because that's what keeps them alive yeah, you know, right. they have a membership system sure. and, and yeah. you pay it's only a, is it a pound to get in on the day or something like that or yeah. 50 something yeah, ridiculous yeah, yeah, to get yeah. in you become a member on the yeah, day yeah. or day membership but that's the way they work they have to get people in and, and spend exactly. it to come in so one of the first times we met was uh your spoken word night it was the first night of Veranda, is yes, that right? At yes. Liberia Bookshop. So, sure, so uh, like I mentioned before, I am a budding bookseller. <laughs> so proud of myself to say when people ask me what I do for a living, I'm like, I'm a bookseller. Part of getting the job was that I would be putting on an event in the shop once a month. It should be poetry heavy, poetry scented, poetry spoken word, whatever, however you want it to find. And yeah, so when we f the first one that you came to, that was the first ever one. And it was sort of a Black History Month special, and it was like it was it was a good night. I think it was a very I good think, night. I think we had a, you know, we had a good good bunch of poets featuring. Three, three very good three, features. Yeah, and the, the other mic, mic was yes. of a high standard. As well. I I quite liked the mic. Yeah, so it, it's nice. Like I really enjoy it. It's like a side project. Um, it's really kind of like down just down to earth and warm. So we had our second one two weeks uh, so like two weeks ago mm. uh, a week ago i can't remember but yeah that went really well as well i was a bit worried that the turnout wouldn't be the same but the, actually, cause the first night's always yeah always, exactly always, I've, uh, lizzie and i found this um, when we were running silence on the tongue the first night was ran absolutely yeah. rammed and then and it dropped like, off a bit hit it. <laughs> yeah, we've done it we've done it we've beaten it yeah <laughs> so it was uh it was it was interesting to see the turnout sort of on the same level uh also because we're doing a black history Month special so we just thought maybe people were like wanted to do something for Black History Month, that's why it was a turnout like that. But actually, some of the people, a lot of the people came back and a lot of new faces, you know, it's always nice to just be doing this and then seeing faces where, you know, sometimes faces become same faces with poetry events or small scene type of events, you know. So it's quite nice to just have this fresh thing where we're just experimenting and doing what we really like. I think that's the biggest struggle with running and starting and running a night is yeah. to keep uh, new people turn out exactly but I think that's sure. mainly down to who you're booking and stuff. Yeah, as long exactly. as you've got a fresh this open mind true. about who you're booking for features who, exactly. that's what draws new people in I think there is a real the, one of the beauties about spoken word nights is that you go and see, you meet your friends and yeah. you can be sure you're going to meet people you get on with and stuff but yeah sure a, a big problem attached with that is that it's the same it's the same same, same. yeah, yeah and uh, you, so you that's veranda and yeah. we'll, you're going to continue at the bookshop Liberia, I'm still at the bookshop. Yeah, as long as, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, we're, yeah. you know, we're the, the big money makers. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, just kidding. Ha ha. In case the boss <laughs> hears this, I love my job. Do not fire me. 
Um, but we're doing really well and uh, in terms of that event. Uh, and I, I ran that with another young poet called Malachi Sargent, who's actually doing his A-levels. And he's ridiculous. just forever inspiring to me because he's such an incredibly clever young man. Never tell him this to his face, though. But, um, I'll cut this bit. Yeah, out. yeah. <laughs> cut, cut, edit it. Or we'll send him a special episode. <laughs> yeah. Or send it to him, and I'll be like, uh, yeah, just don't worry about that. <laughs> Thirty minutes in. Um, but yeah, he's he's a really brilliant young man, and he's he's also bubbling young poet this year. Good for him. Mm. But yeah, we I enjoy working with him, and yeah, we're just flexible. I think it's important setting up a night that you have someone to support you it's yeah. a lot more work than people realize for real yeah. for sure and yeah. even on the night it's for sure so much especially going on. on the night yeah. like you've got like the stress is too much yeah. and i'm a bit of a neurotic person anyway so like definitely like just easily prone to like high stress yeah. for no reason <laughs> whatsoever poetry yeah neurosis and poetry <laughs> oh i'm a poet <laughs> yeah i forgot why <laughs> um I just, I think we're running out of time, so yeah, we might cool. have to finish with a reading. Please. Yeah, sure. Nice. Um, should we like have a a song whilst I search for this poem? Yeah, I'll, I'll put something. Let's in. have a music, uh, music interlude. <laughs> <laughs> so I really love reading this poem. It is about just someone I once met. You know, um, it's not. I don't feel the same. But for those two weeks, I was. I was a flame. <laughs> so this is called uh, Like. On me, I always move too fast with no caution, no calculation of risks, like the sudden edge of a cliff, like the center of a hurricane running behind schedule, like a cloud of smoke rising where there is no fire, like a friend in need. I'm scared to stumble in case the world leaves me behind, in case the world thinks me a thief in broad daylight. Sometimes at night, I get so high my body becomes a light squeeze, and some days I feel open, like the mouth of a wide empty pot, like eating meat straight from the pot, like a face prickled by the heat in the kitchen, like a whole month thickened by daydreams and night sweats like the ropes in his hair, like inferred desires deferred. On him, the boy is chilled like an autumn Praetorian morning, tall and bearded like a man, eyes deep and almost as wise as the Limpopo is ancient. He has a face like the country I have not seen since I was a child. Beautiful. Beautiful like a woman with a strong collarbone and beams for shoulders. The type strong enough to build a danga, big enough to hold enough cows to feed a family, daily, plus guests, with some left over to share with the neighbours. Beautiful, like the way he speaks, a slow tiptoeing of words, like he has eggshells in his mouth, a slow river in his cheeks, a soothing flow of quick wit and jokes inside his lips. Firm like secrets of sleeping pools and ancient caves, like the soft flesh inside mango peels, like a bird in hand that can get you the two in a bush. Thank you very much, Belinda. Thanks for coming today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Yes. I was just rambling. Yeah. <laughs> Peace.
Finally, I'm very pleased to bring you an interview with an amazing artist that I've had the good fortune of spending a lot of time talking to over the last couple of years. I cannot state strongly enough how important this person's work is. Travis Alabanza is an actor, writer and performer, general ray of sunshine, and is currently artist in residence at London's Tate Britain, and was recently one third of the superb cast of Putting Words in Your Mouth at Camden Roundhouse. I urge you to make the effort to find Travis's work. Enjoy. I haven't got a title for this poem yet, so I'm just going to read it. Black bones and cycles. Recycling past trauma, retching it back up through scratched throats and tired breaths for the same conversation. Black bones and cycles. Recycling past trauma. Retching it back up through scratched throats and tired breaths for the same conversation. A white friend asked me if I'm okay and I nod and continue to read my poem. Waxing over black death and pain, only stopping to catch a breath. And what if this is my uncle's last time I did this? A white woman cried of guilt before I could offer her my PayPal account. And a black friend asked me if I was okay today and I broke down in tears. Crumbled into tired bones, collapsed on mounts of past aggressed, unprocessed tears, flooding over tired eyes. And I wonder what about the black body has become so accustomed to the function of hiding our pain. Mastered ways of hidden nods, fist bumps and hush glances, speaking years of silence. That a thank you to a bus driver can mean just that. Or in our hidden tongue, softly whispers, hang in there, brother, another day will come, and I don't know when it be coming, but we both know a thank you isn't enough. A Ghanaian woman complimented me on my head wrap whilst I was walking along the street. She said I looked nice, but I heard we will get each other through the day. She said nice, but I heard that she was willing us both to survive. And I wonder... If as we reuse our horrors like Hamney Downs pass through family lines that the colours start to run less. As if with each wash and cycle we come further from crying our tears, with every broken record scratched onto our speakers our voice becomes more muffled. And you ask me what it is like to be black. You ask me what it is like to be black and queer, to be black and queer and trans and poor and black and lonely and femme and black and hated and in danger and black and trans and queer and dangerous and in danger and a danger and thrown chicken burgers out on the street and black and a tranny and a freak and black and strong and weak and so weak and touched and black and grabbed and felt and black and every touch reminding me of him and ask me what it feels like to cry for nights and tears and be fierce and slay and black and be slayed and what it feels like to wake up with the same pain you sleep in and not to wash and to be black and to be in cycles and to fall and to be black and to be black and to be queer. You ask me for the 20th time this month what it's like to be black and queer. I pause, I nod, I recycle some phrase referencing an academic that both of us will never read and move on to the next question. Thank you, Travis. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Early morning. Yeah. Uh, so, there's a bit of a building work going on next door, so there may be some sounds while we're chatting, but okay. I don't think it's going to be too bad. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I invite people on to the podcast, and I know them really well, but perhaps people who are listening don't. So maybe yeah. you could just introduce yourself a bit sure. in your work, and then we'll start chatting sure. after. Sure. Um, my name is Travis Alabanza. 
for David's friends and non-friends that don't know me. Um, I'm a performance artist that grounds a lot of their work in poetry and spoken word. Um, but I use um, live performance that varies in like theatre or like projection or live sounds and music um, to kind of create like a multi-layered experience. If you didn't get from my poem introduction, I'm hella black and really queer and really trans. And a lot of my work is looking at the intersections of this and how I navigate like my daily life, really. So it's the 22nd of November as mm-hmm. we're chatting. And because there's something happening tonight, opening, <laughs> we should maybe start talking about that. It probably yes, makes sense. Sure. Um, so you're... Actually, explain what's opening tonight, uh, briefly, so without giving this, too much away. But. On this day, I'm currently trying to calm my nerves via doing a radio interview with a friend, because it's much easier, but tonight is the opening of Putting Words in Your Mouth, which is Scotty's new devised piece of theatre at the Roundhouse. It's been the Roundhouse's like main plug show for like ever, it seems they've been publicising it, um, and it opens tonight and I'm one of three cast members in it. Those that do know your work and are listening will know you as a solo performer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this the first time you've been part of a kind of no. collaborative work like this? No, yeah, so it's the first time I've done it in a while and it's the first time that maybe like people that know me in London or like have known my work or have caught wind of me in the last two years probably just see me as a solo performer um, and I am my youth and like growing up and like my young life as like, I'm really young, so it just sounds weird reflecting back. But like I started in theater, I was based in theater, like that's what I've always done. And I was in loads of like devised theater groups and created loads of shows with people. So like, it doesn't feel too far from like my experiences of like being young. Like it kind of felt like I was like jumping back into like my A-level drama class, except this time I was paying my rent with it. <laughs> um, but, it has been hard because like since then I've developed my own like artistic voice and developed like my own, I do my own work and I'm booked as myself. And I think like, I kind of, it's been really interesting because when I got the call that they said they wanted to give me the job, I was like, hold on a minute. This is like an acting job. Like this is at a theater, this is at an institution. And I always wanted to be an actor and then realized, because I, I think I didn't realize when I was younger I thought that the only way you could make, I don't know, I feel like working class kids don't, sorry, I'm jumping from those of different balls. I don't, I feel like working class kids don't get like a nuanced representation of what an artist can be. I think we get like, I think anyone gets like a weird lens of what an artist can be, but definitely as working class kids, you don't have like an artist in the family trolling around. You don't have links to galleries. So all I saw, like I knew that I liked to perform and I thought that the only way to do that was to be an actor. I didn't realise that there was this like scene where you are creating your own work or a performance art scene. Like, we just don't have like access to that. So when I gave up being wanting to be an actor because I just thought it was never going to happen, I thought that would be it. So it's really weird now jumping back into being on a theatre that I would have dreamed on being on, but watching how your dreams in that space of time like completely changed because I discovered this whole other world of performance that like much fits like fits me much better. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. There's because a, a lot of parallels between because although I am <coughs> that many years older than you, <laughs> uh, we started out in the spoken word scene mm. around about the same time, and, yeah. and live winter as well. Yeah. We all sort of it, obviously different places, but we started at the same time. Mm. And I, I definitely, 
understand what you mean by there was no I wanted to work within the arts mm. when I was growing up. Mm. I had no idea how to do it. I became mm. a carpenter um, right. and then sort of worked my way into it. And it wasn't until I found spoken word that I found a way to get into it on my own. Yeah. And then mm. it opens up and then you mm. think, well, actually I could be a writer. Yeah. There's really. nothing stopping me mm-hmm. um, apart from the mainly barriers. I'm talking about myself here, but there yeah. are barriers in my own head and, and it helped me overcome those barriers. Mm-hmm. So I definitely really feel what you're saying there. But although you have acted and have taken part in theatre productions before, how has the experience been different now you've been such been performing alone for so long? Mm. I think it's different for like loads of reasons. One, I think it's different because there's pressure on this piece. From the moment we like got the job, it felt like there was pressure. And it's not just pressure because it's like Scotty's name and we all know that like Scotty's last show, putting, if you didn't know Scotty's last show, like putting words in your mouth was like acclaimed as like, uh, not that's our show. <laughs> the worst of Scotty uh, was like acclaimed as like, you know, one of the best like new pieces of like queer theatre coming out. And Scotty's kind of like a household queer name. And their show was beautiful. So it felt like this was their first show after like a hiatus. So you entered this room on the first day and there was like pressure from the get go that this was like meant to be big. You know, we were like looking at publicists, we were looking at like how the press is gonna release. We all had these different interviews set up. So I think there was that pressure that as like a DIY solo show artist that's never been backed institutionally. And this is what this show is, you know, it's backed by the Arts Council, by the Roundhouse, by these things. This was very new for me as someone that's always had to like do my own promo and like find my own venue and get my own like generation of interest. It felt very weird because with this, all of that had been done for us. So the only thing I had to worry about was literally like my performance, which I think then put so much stress on my performance. I think the challenges of working collaboratively with three, with two other solo artists, like that's what's hilarious. Like the two other cast members we've talked extensively, like we've all had our own solo shows. We've all, been for the last two, three years making like performance work. You know, I'm working with Lasana Shabazz who like for London performance people like, it's like a pretty like, he's been doing this stuff for a while and is like really good at doing their own work. So when we all met each other, we were like, ah, oh, but we're actually getting on really, really well. And I think it's because we're all solo performers, we're getting on really well. Cause we're all kind of seeing this as like a mini break from like having to focus on our own work and just kind of doing up someone else's work. But I think like, I don't know, I think collaboration comes with all its challenges, it is still directed and devised by Scotty. Whereas with my solo show, if at the last minute before Monday night were opening, I said, I don't want these lights, we're gonna change it. I would change it. But when you've got an institution behind you, you can't just make changes like that. You have to like jump through these hoops and hire a tech person. And there's just so many people around you making decisions that actually it's really hard to collaboratively like fit in all those voices. So I don't know, I think I'm learning, I'm learning a lot, but I think it's helped my practice. Would you agree that it's also a bit of a double-edged sword along those ways of like not being able to make changes and stuff? It's not always a positive experience getting a big stage in this way, is it? So you're it's mm. at the Roundhouse tonight, isn't it? Yeah, Which is a big deal in London, yeah. up in Camden. Um, doesn't, it's not always just a bed of roses <laughs> to no. get to perform places like that. <laughs> no, like I'm... Yeah, I'm really nervous and I think I wasn't until I'm like now woken up and I am nervous and I think it is like not always a bed of roses because although the roundhouse have been lovely and they've been amazing, like the other week I like hurt my leg in rehearsals really badly and within an hour I was at a physio down the road paid for 
And I think like that, I would never have, if I hurt my show or my stories all covered by money kids, then I've just hurt my leg. As lovely as bar whatever are. Right, exactly. There's no physio, <laughs> There's no physio <laughs> like just like that. And the physio was gorgeous and I'm going again today. And it's just been booked like sorted and, you know, dressing room and food. And I get to have a can of Coke every day after I perform. Like, and all these things that institutions can give us that make us feel really nice. But of course it's for me, it's double-edged because you know, we're making a show that's meant, is queer and political, is queer and political. Um, whereas before I had no one censoring me. I had no one telling me like, what if this happens? What if that happens? It was up to me to take that risk. I think what I've witnessed is like, we are still working in an institution, that institution is inherently white. So then if you're making a show that is about race, Actually, I wanted to touch on, yeah. we don't have to talk about this production in particular, but mate, because I know you've worked in a lot of big institutions, arts and theatre-based. Yeah. Is, is there still a huge difference between what you would consider queer and political and what you're sort of allowed to say in these spaces, mm. do you think, yeah? It depends what space. It's like really interesting because I'm artist and residence at the Tate at the moment, which is obviously probably the other big... So I'm working with these two big institutions at the moment, like, right? And it's, like, really interesting and, like, not surprising that, like, that's a question to be asked because I'm asking myself that question as well. Like, how can I still claim or be or do, like, my radical practice and politics whilst paying my rent through two institutions that, like, I don't know if Roundhouse was much, I don't have the history of the Roundhouse, but Tate, like, has a history and is still presently harming people you know like I'm not like the Tate is not a great institution and I think what I'm like learning really quickly is that for example the Tate like I really love my job at the Tate like I love it and I think it's possibly like the best thing I've ever done and I'm working in a group of people I'm like the Tate has so many different sections and different courts and different like I've not met like half the people that work at the Tate right they're such a big institution that I have no idea who's working there I'm just in my little bubble of the education and learning team because I work with young people and in there the first thing we did when we got in on the day was they asked me everyone what their pronouns was and acknowledged the whiteness of the staff that was there and then since then we've been able to talk critically about race um we've been able to talk they let me do whatever I want like I've been projecting like images of like Dizzy Rascal and Beyonce next to the Henry Moore sculptures and watching them have like a conversation. I had my kids last week turn these like really boring rocks that are in the Tate Britain, like these rocks in the 60s room. And one of the kids said it was a boat. Then one kid went, it was a shipwreck. Then one kid said it reminded them of Calais. So then we created a whole paper mache like added thing that was like a, was like a thing to Theresa May saying like stop deporting people like accept refugees and the Tate let us keep it up there for the whole day. So like, although I don't think that's radically changing like the structures of the Tate, I'm really learning quickly how like I can use my practice to like push radical politics into the Tate. Like what does it mean that my workshop at the Tate is loads of kids going around with their Snapchat and face swapping their faces onto these old like 1800 paintings of like a white Jesus. And then what does it mean that like part of my workshop is about like finding modern songs that go to like go to old pieces of artwork so we have this huge speaker that the Tate funds me to have and we're blasting like Dizzy Rascal or Juju on the beat and they're doing the dance in front of these 1800 pictures like students of colour. I think the reason I wanted to ask you that question was because your experiences will feed into the experiences of so many other artists as well. If you are in any way any form of radical artist Mm. whatever your politics are 
you might find it difficult in your mind to go into an institution like that. Definitely. I think it's important because we sort of had this, without sounding apologist about the institutions in any way, but yeah. we had a similar discussion about the Arts Council recently and the difference between judging the institutions and the individuals that work in there. And I think, do you, have you found since you've been in there and met, because I worked at the Tate mm. for five years as a freelance technician, mm. and it was exactly the same thing. I know barely anyone in there, and I spent right. a lot of time in that building. It was mainly because when we were in there, we were physically shut away because mm. of, we were doing changeovers. It's such an enormous organisation. There, there is always going to be a space in there for you, isn't there? Right, and I feel like... I feel like it's not that I want to be judgment-free of the people that work there. I think I'm still complicit in something. And it means that I just have to work extra hard whilst I'm in there to subvert it even more. And that's the kind of thing I go in for. I'm like, wow, I've taken this job. I decided that this job was good for me to take. So I need to, like, fuck it up even more. But I do think you're right. Like, I think a black, like, black artist in residence is, like, there before who held radical practices and have had that residency. And it can you can definitely tell when I come in, I can tell that they've had a black artist there before. And I think it's that thing of like, okay, well then, then there is shifting the institution. And although like ideally I'd want to work and like live in a world where we work outside of these institutions, we have to pay rent, we have to do these things. And maybe I'm getting this, I saw it as my ideal like end goal is that I want to be able to do these workshops and doing with these kids without institutional funding by myself. I want to create like these arts honor schools and do these things for kids. But no one's gonna fund me unless I've had this experience first. Do you know what I mean? So I saw it as like, okay, this is like a short term thing for like a long term solution outside of institutions. Yeah, so hopefully I think I'm like one of the first like trans femme kind of artist residences at the Tate. I don't think I've ever had people like going around in these workshops doing dresses and having to like account for what that equals. And hopefully, We've had conversations about like more gender neutral toilets and things like that. So hopefully that means that future artists and customers that like come through the tape will have a different experience. Have you noticed any discernible change in your writing style since you've been involved with these? Actually, if we talk more mm. uh, specifically about the residency, because that's been a more regular mm. thing for a slightly longer time, hasn't mm. it? Um, yeah. And we can also probably touch on the Barbican Young Poets in that mm. as well. Um, but I was just wondering, because it's probably going to seem completely irrelevant to anyone listening, but I've personally noticed a big difference in your writing. So just sort of one, and a really positive um, difference as well. I think it's, um, how am I going to say this without being completely condescending? No, it's okay to be condescending. No, but it it just seems so much more considered now in terms Mm. of the words that you put down. You seem a lot more confident in your own ability. Yeah. So I was just wondering about like these public facing roles Mm. and these critiquing projects you've been part of, how that's affected your writing. Yeah, I think I've gotten, thanks for noticing improvement, I feel like I've improved too. I feel like I'm catching up with the hype around me, and I felt like that for a while. I felt like I'd been, before I was getting all these gigs as like a poet, and people were calling me a poet and I'd always tell them I'm a performer, because I felt like something that I knew I could do was perform. Like I know I know how to like do a show, but something I was really doubting and really didn't actually know if I could do was like write, and it felt really dishonest this whole time, like getting paid to like write and read poems and I was like oh are they actually any good um like are these words like I don't know you hear other poets and you're like wow like wow like why and it's like not a wild jealousy it's just like wow like yeah, I'm not yeah. going to be able to like achieve this form of writing and I think with Barbican Young Poets I didn't feel like it was helping me at the time and then now looking back I think it's been the most helpful 
part of like my process and I wish I had the time this year to do it again. And it's so interesting because I'm so stubborn and didn't think that at the time. I was like, they're not letting me talk about performance. They're not letting me do all the sound and the things that I do to make anything. And it's like, no, but that's because they're making you a better writer that will then in turn like create a better practice for you. And their job is to get you to focus on things that need to... Yeah, and they were, you know... And it felt so focused on form and structure that my head was like, I can't do this. And actually like, no, I still don't apply like a strict form and structure to my work, but through the knowledge of having to like do these forms and structures and learn the craft and learn the technique. It's funny because I can remember having a conversation with you before you started that yeah. about how you wanted to focus more on your writing. Yeah. And you wanted to do all of those things. But then I got there and I'm like <laughs> a stubborn little shit. And I feel like I was like, do you know what? I really don't, I don't feel I took advantage of the space as much as I could have, but I still got a lot out of it. I got like really great friends and like beautiful, inspirational poets. I think what I was figuring out in Barbican Young Poets is that I'm not, like poetry isn't my practice. And I think that's what I was figuring out there. I was like, right, this doesn't fit. Like I want to do more. And I wasn't like feeling, I wasn't figuring out what that looked like. And I think since then, being in a space like the Arsenal Residence Get the Tate, I've really been able to like explore my practice. And I have an exhibition coming up in February at Transmissions Gallery in Glasgow. So I'm going to have a month long exhibition just of like my work as an artist. And I think it was really, and I'm making like, I don't know, I haven't released a lot of my new work at the moment, but I have in January coming out a performance piece. And I think that will be the first time people really see like the new direction that like I'm thinking that my work will take where poetry is definitely in there and like words are definitely in there, but it's not like at the forefront, like it's visuals and it's imagery. And I think that's because at Barbican Young Poets, I was so stressed out about like not being able to do what I wanted to do that I wasn't just realising that like actually, no matter what, in my practice, learning how to write better will help. I think it's important to go through those processes as well, which teach you or allow you to ask questions of yourself mm-hmm. as well. You mm-hmm. know? I might be projecting my own experiences mm-hmm. onto you, but about the working class thing, especially mm-hmm. because I didn't yeah. go to, I didn't do a fine art degree, right, as same. like a lot of my contemporaries did. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I do know how to ask questions, but that's because I sort of went through the same process yeah. you did a little while ago with some other things and through this podcast has helped me yeah. a lot. But how do you know how what questions to oh, ask it's before that? You know? It's definitely a working class thing. It's like def- mixed with obviously so many other things, but I think at the front of it was, it's like, I didn't go to art school. I don't have poets around me at home. I don't have loads of books around me at home. Like we read, well, yeah, no, like I, I don't like, my mum, like, is a beautiful and intelligent, like, woman, but we're not, we didn't have time to sit at home and talk about poetry. And I think, yeah, you start doubting your work really hard. You start second-guessing your words really hard because, like, I don't use the same words as these people because I don't know how to at the moment. I don't want to also. Like, I, I always say that I want to read my poem. I was so disinterested with poetry that, like, is read and then just doesn't land. It sounds pretty, but, like, nothing landed, like, on my chest mm. and nothing, like... And I was like, I would rather use two syllable words, three syllable words, and it land with the kid at my council estate back home, than go back and be booked for a gig at my council estate, read these poems, and everyone's like, what what did just happened? But they look really smart. Like, I'm not about that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's working class stuff. You want to ask those questions, and then you don't, because there's this, like, stubborn prideness in me that's like, I don't want to ask questions because I want to seem like I'm not, like, smart. 
But actually, there's all these other middle class kids taking up all the space, asking all the questions, getting all the advice, getting all the time, because they're like, they knew that they could do that in that environment. And I think it was just learning that, like, it was okay for me to ask questions. I always, my argument about it is always that um, artists, anyone that's been to art school forgets how terrifying critiquing is mm, because you go it. through it in your first they term. Crit every week. And you get over the horrendous mm. um, procedure that is to sit down and share your work and have it ripped to pieces. Or not even ripped to pieces, but even if someone comments slightly yeah. in, the, in a neutral way, yeah. it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. You know? um, also, I think touching on the Barbican Young Poets, the way they teach there, I would recommend to a lot of artists trying to write poetry in some sort of form because going through that um, process of having all those rules makes you question what parts of your work are functioning. Mm. I think writing poetry in that way is a really good way into performance and into Mm. any form Mm. of art because Mm. you learn to question your own work because there are so many strict rules within it. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think... I wish there was a space in... I wish there was a space somewhere. There maybe there is spaces and I don't know where I could just go and get my work critiqued whilst I'm writing it. I feel like you have to set up everything as you're like a friend's like, oh, can you edit this work? But mm. I wish there was a space where I could just like, we were submitting work and people were just being honest and being like, actually, you know what, this is... Have you thought about this? Because I'm lacking that at the moment. I have no like editor. You I know? mean, I, 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 I've got a couple of groups of friends where I can do that and we sort of meet, meet up informally Mm. Uh, but fairly regularly but I think there is definitely a space for a collective of artists because that's one big problem is that you either get groups of writers meeting or you get groups of performers meeting but very mm. rarely do you get a space where people can go with different ideas right. and be a fle- and mm. be in a, have a flexible practice within mm. that space as mm. well I think there's a lack for certain, certainly for you yeah. you you need to talk about all of these things right exactly I'm never like writing just to for it to be on page yeah. or some at the moment I've been like being requested to write for like different journals and things and that's been a really interesting experience because like oh I really am thinking about my words so much more because there's no nothing this is just going to be read on page um, and I think my work looks so so different on page and like people have seen read my work and then seen that same piece performed with all the sound and everything and they're like wow it's like a completely different reading of it yeah. the other day I went to a gig I was doing Queer Say at the Free Word Centre and the sound was just like not great. So I was like, do you know what? I'm not going to do sound. I'm just going to read some poems. And I read this poem that like people have heard so many times with sound and I did it without. And Dean was like, wow, like I got a completely different meaning from it. I've been angry when I've heard it before and now I want to cry. And then I was like, wow, I don't think I need to do this piece of sound anymore. Like all... Actually, that's probably... Isn't Dean Atty's? Yeah. I think that sums up the change in your work brilliantly, is that um, your how powerful your work is with sound, but if you when you actually read it, and like you're, mm. you're writing so much more considered now, it still lands. Mm. You don't, you, mm. it's, it's so much more with the sound, but it also stands alone without it as well. Um, and so now, I'm looking at the clock and time's running on. Oh. I think we should maybe wrap up. Um, oh, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll finish with a reading, please. Okay. Um, I just wrote this yesterday, and I feel like I'm just wanting to read new stuff, and it's not been edited, and I don't know what it's like. And it's called Preparation, and I wrote it when the whole... Like, I was thinking about it because I went to a sexual health clinic yesterday, and I was just thinking about prep and drugs and that stuff. Prepare for the nausea. The sick in your stomach the next day. 
the turning in your guts, the dizziness when you awake. Prepare for the unneeded shame, the shame that has no place, the guilt that does not need to stay, the fear that will stay anyway. Prepare for you to hate him. The feeling will come and go. The feeling will sit still. The feeling will then roam. Prepare for the is it my fault to creep in. Then shout at it to fuck off. Then shout at it to never come back. Then shout that it is never your fault. Prepare for the long waits in hospital rooms. The feelings of eyes watching you. The feeling of the friend's hand you remember to hold. The text that you will send to ask for help. Preparation. Preparation. Prepare to operate. Again, breathe deeply. You will breathe again, again, again. Prepare for the new ways that your body can survive. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, I'm really excited about January to see your new work now. Yeah, it's called Burgers. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck, that's such a weird way to edit. Thanks, it's called Burgers. Bye, Bye, everyone.